If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. And so I want to give a special thank you to Stricklandia.com, who just gave us this five-star review. Great stuff. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy has kept me engaged, entertained, and most importantly awake on many a long road trip. This show is a must-listen for anyone who honestly considers themselves a science fiction fan. So big thanks again to Stricklandia.com for that great review. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 492 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new anthology, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2021. And we've discussed previous books in this series back in episodes 177, 224, 275, 342, and 452. So definitely check those out if you miss them. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. And he's also edited more than 30 other anthologies. His latest project is the three-volume dystopia triptych, Ignorance is Strength, Burn the Ashes, and Or Else the Light. So, John, welcome back. Hey, always good to be here. The next up, we've got Veronica Roth, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 409. She's the number one New York Times bestselling author of Chosen Ones, the Divergent series, and the Carve the Mark duology. And she was also the guest editor for the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2021. So, Veronica, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Johanka Delgado. She's a graduate of American University's MFA program, the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop, and the Voices of Our Nation's Workshops. Her short fiction appears in Nightmare, One Story, A Public Space, and The Paris Review. And her stories, Our Language and the Rat, appear in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2021. So, Johanka, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so let's start off with Johanka. So how big of a fantasy and science fiction fan are you? I mean, I, I love, I love reading speculative fiction, which I think, um, for, for reasons that I think Veronica talks a little bit about in her introduction to the anthology, because it allows us to see, um, see things in a new way by changing the, the lens, if that makes sense. So sort of looking at the world in new ways by distorting them, seeing things better by distorting them, if that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, I think there's just the imagination um, required to make fantasy and science fiction work for a reader is, is um, so much more demanding. And so it's a form that I, I, I mean, it's a genre that, that I love. Uh, I mean, are there particular uh, authors or movies or anything that have really had a big impact on you growing up? Um, I think it's in terms of like my sort of the origin story, the, the book that really sort of changed, like radicalized me. <laughs> um, I love Tuck Everlasting. I don't know. If oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's that sort of gentle fantasy <laughs> that I love, um, just like the world distorted just enough to make you look at something differently. 
Yeah, they say it's about a, a family and they find a spring that makes them immortal. And yes. hence the title, Tuck Everlast. I loved that. I loved that book when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, I saw that you went to the Clarion. I mentioned the, in the intro there, you went to the Clarion workshop. So tell us about that. I did. Um, I think it was one of the most intense six weeks of, of my life, um, but also one of the best experiences. Um, because I don't know if, you know, I don't know how, how familiar everyone is with the like the sort of premise of it or how it works, but you have six rotating instructors and you write a short story every week um, and you don't show up with anything written. The idea is to write everything while you're there and you workshop every morning, you get new stories to read every night and you show up the next morning ready to talk about them while you're also working on your own stories for a weekly submission. And so it's a real grind. You're like ingesting so much mm -hmm. science fiction and fa fantasy, but also producing it. Um, and it's like such an intense and, and fun way to live. I don't, I mean, obviously not sustainable. <laughs> I don't think I can, end, they, I think they say that you shouldn't do it more than once. They should, have, I, a si they should <laughs> have a six year version. That's what we really need. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love, I, I love the intensity of having, um, having deadlines, but you know, I think we came out of, we kind of crawled out of there at the end. Yeah. So who were the guests who came your year? Um, we had Carmen Maria Machado. We had Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. We had Karen Lord and Maurice Broadus. No, and Karen Lord also has a story in this uh, Best mm -hmm. American anthology. She does. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, and then I also want to ask Veronica, you know, last time I talked to you, you were talking, you know, you your book Chosen Ones had just come out, which John was the, the editor on. And it was kind of your first book that was marketed to an adult science fiction audience. So I was just kind of curious how, uh, how's that sort of in, the inroads into that, that world? How's that been? What's, what's been your experience with that? Well, it's been a, it's been kind of a weird year to enter into a new space. I think, um, it came out the first week that everyone was in well, lockdown. Why did, did something, ha did something happen this past? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one or two things. <laughs> So uh, I kind of feel like it just, it's been a little atypical. I haven't been to a conference to meet other authors. I haven't done any of the things I kind of normally would do to get my feet wet in a new category with like new peers, some some new peers. Um, so it feels a little bit like the book Halfway came out. I mean, obviously hmm. it did come out um, and there were many like exciting parts of that, but um it's still unreal. Like, I think I only saw it in a bookstore, I don't know, recently, like a few months ago, even though it came out last year. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, John mentions in his intro that you went to Worldcon for the first time in 2019. So you did mm -hmm. get to go to at least one right before the yes. pandemic hit. But it was a little like, I like all your books. <laughs> like a, a little bit of like a fan, um, you know, because, you know, I've obviously written books before, but um it was just in a in a totally different crowd, and you know there are a lot fewer teenagers in attendance at <laughs> Worldcon <laughs> than my typical um, my typical con or f festival conference situation. <laughs> so I kind of missed them a little bit, but uh, it was it was still really fun. So did you just kind of go to Worldcon by yourself, and or did you like know anyone who was there that you kind of met up with? Or um, no, I knew I knew a couple people, and I was on panels, but I, I was on. Uh, sort of YA focused panels because obviously those are the books that had been out at that point. Um, 
but it was a it was a good experience to get to know how that whole crowd works and then to um I don't know. I, I read all the short stories. I think as John mentioned in the intro mm-hmm. to this oh, anthology, yeah, yeah. I read everybody's nominated short stories. So then I really was like trying to find people. Like I remember um, Daryl Gregory was who wrote one of the stories in this collection was um, the moderator of one of my panels. And I was just sort of bombarded him with how much I loved um, <laughs> uh, nine last days on planet earth. I think is the, is it's a no- novelette maybe um, that was nominated that year. And he was just like, okay, who, who are you <laughs> in a very nice way? But I think uh, he wasn't maybe expecting that from me, but anyway, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully they'll, uh, you know, you'll be able to go to more of those, uh, you know, soon. Yes, that's the hope. Uh, um, and so then, John, so this is, you know, like about the, what is this, like the seventh or something book in the series? Uh, uh, seventh, yes. Yeah. So um, was there anything about this one, like, that stands out, this, like, this experience of putting this book together uh, over the past year or so? Uh, well, I mean, it was a, it was a weird year to be putting together anything uh as you know veronica was alluding to but then also um you know sort of in the middle of this pandemic uh you know my wife christy and i moved from california to missouri uh and you know drove from california to missouri with uh, a dog and three cats uh so that was uh that was a challenge um but uh you know it's a um I mean, it came together ultimately, like all of these have come together. Um, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's more, cha- it was more challenging because of that. But then also, um, I guess I had a little bit more free time toward the end of it since, uh, you know, uh, didn't have that whole imprint thing going on anymore. Um, so silver lining, uh, had more time to, <laughs> <laughs> had more time to read short stories again. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, even though there's all kinds of, you know, stuff going on in the world. Um, you know, when it comes down to winnowing down my choices, I find that I can tune everything out and I can just, you know, get lost in all the worlds of the stories. Um, and of course, sometimes the stories remind you of the real world because, you know, they're dealing with uh, all these uh, pertinent issues to, to, you know, life today. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's a it's it's a nice way to uh to sort of focus my energies instead of just like worrying about everything that's happening that I can't control. Yeah. Well, you say that uh, our friend Chris Savasco, who's been on the show a bunch of times, is is this, is your assistant editor now? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So he's he's kind of doing um uh some uh some reading for me, like sort of first reading to to sort of help me winnow down the things where it's like uh you know if there's like uh anthologies that i i don't know if i'll have time to get to like or or i would only be able to give like a a pretty fast cursory read to uh in in my effort to you know review everything like you know he's he's doing the first pass on on a lot of stuff like that um and also just like you know some things that i've you know not really connected with that great before like or you know publications and it's like okay well uh this way uh maybe maybe they'll get a fairer shake because uh you know Chris is a different reader than I am. And, and, uh, I just feel like, uh, with Chris helping out, it's, it's more likely that I actually will find those gems that are in there that I would love. Um, you know, so. Yeah. I also, John, I really like the cover art on this year's book. Do you have any idea where, where that came from? Um, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I assume it was, uh, some sort of, uh, I mean, (laughs) I, I think that 
all of the art that they've grabbed for these things has been sort of like stock art sort of deal, like, you know, from like Adobe, Adobe stock or, um, I can't remember what the name of the other big one is, but, uh, you know, one of these, uh, stock art sites and, um, uh, like last year's volume, I really liked the the one that Diana Gabaldon edited. Um, and then this year also, I thought they did a really good job. Um, yeah, there's sort of, let me, I'll just describe it for listeners. Yeah. There's sort of like a glowing gate that's kind of blue and pink. And then to either side of it are these two walls that they kind of look like the, the trench on the Death Star, <laughs> except kind of more three-dimensional with, with sort of cubes sticking mm-hmm. out in different, at different uh, heights or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I certainly prefer uh, this one uh, greatly uh, compared to, uh, you know, most of the early ones uh, in, you know, uh, where they were doing much less uh, sort of graphical, um, uh, you know, or illustration based uh, image uh, covers, um, you know, where they were doing a lot of symbolic symbols and uh, like other sort of abstract things. It's like, I want some concrete images on my science fiction fantasy <laughs> stuff so that when I look at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, science fiction fantasy. Cool. I want to get that. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny just how science fiction books have such a history with representational art. You know, mm-hmm. that's sort of something you really associate with the field, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so but, but going back to Veronica, so what was it like when John approached you to be the, the sort of series editor, or not series, he's the series editor, the, <laughs> the sort of annual editor for this, uh, this year's book? Well, I mean, it was sort of... Uh, flattering to be asked um because it means that he thinks i might have good taste which is um great to hear always i was a little daunted at the prospect of reading that many stories just in kind of a short time frame it's not that short but um you know that's that's a little bit like okay can i do it and i think that was ultimately what was so appealing about it was like well i would love to get that kind of survey of like of what kind of writing um people are are doing in short fiction, because I, I don't know, I might be biased, but I think uh, short fiction shines particularly well in science fiction and fantasy. And so um, it's a great way to find new writers that you might be interested in longer works or their other short work. Um, and it's just like a great introduction or sampling of kind of what people are thinking about and um, what kind of conversations they're having inside the genre space. So it was, uh, I don't know, it was an exciting challenge. And I was expecting to be really, really biased toward the science fiction stories, because I'm more of a science fiction reader and more of a science fiction writer, although I've certainly done both. Um, But that that really wasn't the case. I, uh, I ended up kind of loving each side of the coin equally. Hmm. The fantasy offerings were really strong. So um, anyway, that was a little bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about how, you know, this was sort of the COVID year where, where most of these stories were written, you know, by people. I mean, if you read the author's notes and stuff, people say that a lot of them, they were like in lockdown and, and so on writing these stories. And so I don't know, did you feel like you could, did, like you could sense that, 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 that was the reality, uh, behind a lot of these stories as you were reading all the, the 80 stories for the book? Yeah, I sort of, I wasn't quite sure if it was because the writers had been a little bit sad or dealing with grief or just processing, you know, a lot of emotions, or if I was gravitating toward those stories because that's what I was doing. Um, so I wasn't sure if I was noticing an actual trend or if certain things were leaving out to me just because of like kind of the place my head was in. I just um, have such a clear memory of like how cold it was outside when I was reading these and 
um, and how long we had been sort of isolated from each other and um, all the, I don't know, <laughs> it takes, I do cry a lot when reading, but uh, oh. I was surprised by how many of these made me cry. <laughs> um, really emotionally af- affecting stories um, were kind of the ones I ended up choosing. Yeah. I mean, John, do, do you see this sort of as the, the COVID year stories? Because I mean, the way I count, it depends on how you count, but I, I count about half the stories involve a character grieving the loss of someone who's recently died or who is dying or, or something like that. Is that something that like a trend that you really noticed this this year? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not like people ask me about trends all the time. And like, I, I don't feel like I'm particularly great at uh, picking up on those kinds of things. Like, I mean, I my taste runs towards the that sort of uh, moodier and, and darker sort of uh, take on things anyway. So, I mean, it's it's less surprising to me that um, the 80 stories that uh, the guest editor picks any given year uh, might uh, be skewed in that direction just because that's where my tastes uh, lie. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I can't say that I particularly noticed it being more more so in that regard than than other years. Um, but uh yeah i mean uh and 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 of course i i it's harder for me to like see the the particular 20 that ended up in the book as opposed to like thinking about the 80 that i picked you know because it's like oh well i haven't like sat down and reread reread all these cover to cover uh you know and tried to discern that particular trend or anything but there uh, were a lot more lighthearted mm-hmm. ones in the 80 than there are mm-hmm. in the 20 yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I will say ah. that's what i remember i was like I don't know if I'm the right yeah. reader for this kind of story. <laughs> Probably I'm biased. Yeah. Aha. So it's her fault that it's, <laughs> yeah, it's my fault. It's my fault. <laughs> we do have a couple really delightful and funny entries mm-hmm. in this. I just want to say. <laughs> uh, also, I mean, the one thing I noticed that I thought was interesting was that the Karen Lord story is the only story that deals explicitly with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And she says that she wrote that before COVID. So. She did. Yeah, I saw that note and I was kind of surprised. Uh, although I guess I shouldn't be. It's People have been predicting that we would have pandemic for a long time. Yeah. But so, um, so, so Johanka, do you want to talk about what was your experience like um, when John approached you or when you found out that you had these, um, these two mm-hmm. stories selected for the book? I mean, I, it's hard. It's, I'm, I'm speechless even thinking about it because it was such an amazing moment. Um, I, I mean, I immediately assumed that it was some sort of mistake, <laughs> especially because it said two stories and I was like, Oh no, would you like give one back? Like, I don't know. <laughs> um, like I did not see it coming, but it was such an amazing email to get. Hmm. Such an honor. Yeah. And so one of these stories you wrote, you actually wrote at Clarion, right? Yes. And I can confirm, at least on my end, that neither of these stories are informed by the pandemic. They were all mm. written long before. Mm-hmm. Um, our language was written in like 2017, I think I started drafting that. Wow. And the uh, rat story was a Clarion story. So in 2019 also. I mean, I, th- I thought it was interesting because you said that you spent about three years writing our language. And yes. since you wrote The Rat at Clarion, I assume you spent like a week or something writing <laughs> that one. So obviously you're just awesome no matter how, whether it's a short <laughs> writing time or a long writing time. LOL, right? <laughs> um, I So at Clarion, I like skipped a week and was like, just like rocking back and forth in a panic in <laughs> my room because I was like, I have to write something and I have this idea and I can't. 
I can't seem to write something else, but I also don't feel like, you know, that feeling when you feel like you want to write something, um, but you're not quite ready. Like you don't feel like you're like mm-hmm. the writer you need to be to, to tackle it yet. So I just had this feeling and it was just, it, it was stopping me from doing anything else. And the schedule at Clarion is relentless. Mm-hmm. I'd already missed a week. I couldn't miss another one. And I talked to Andy Duncan, who is a wonderful human. Um, and he just, he was like, I don't, basically he was like, I don't understand why you're not just doing this. <laughs> um, which is sometimes what you need to hear, right? You need somebody to just like <laughs> shake you by the shoulders and tell <laughs> you to just go do it. And so I did. Um, but that first draft was, um, you know, it was critiqued by my classmates and, um, Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. And there were like lots of notes, lots of ideas for, for things to tweak and, and fix and readjust. So it wasn't finished by any means of the word. I, I still worked on it for like six more months and, and retweaked and changed things. And then when one story, uh, magazine accepted it, we then worked on it some more. So the real lifespan of it is a year. Okay. Drafting and fixing and tweaking. But so, so the, so the premise of the story is that there's a young woman and she's sort of selling knives door to door. And, um, she has kind of this strange sort of magical encounter with a, with a woman, you know, one of, one of her customers in this apartment she goes to that's infested with rats. And you say in the, in the author's note that you actually were a door to door knife salesman <laughs> at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's what we'd call an MLM now. <laughs> um, because what it was is they would, they would take in high school students, which I mean, I don't know why anyone would think that high school students are the best demographic for selling knives, but they would hire high school students in New York City, uh, on commission, um, to sell knives. And what it really came down to was us using our own networks and selling knives to like our parents and our parents' friends and then their friends. Um, and that was how we made money. So it wasn't door to door. It was more like arranging calls with people that you barely knew and then showing up at their house, uh, which was more awkward in some ways. <laughs> and I was like, fantastically bad at it. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> we had Cutco knives growing up. And now I want to ask my mom if it's because like a friend's kid pressured her into buying that. <laughs> so I should go ask her that. I'd make it. I'd, I'd bet on it for sure. <laughs> They're good what? knives. She was living in New York, so maybe. <laughs> so when you say you were so, what what made you so bad at it? Like, did you have any like disastrous experiences or anything? I was just like overthinking it, and like there were really really expensive knives. Like a like a set could be like upwards of five hundred dollars because these. I mean, they're they are quality knives. I remember like the scissors would cut a penny mm. in half. Mm. Um, the the steak knives would cut a piece of leather like really smoothly. Um, but it was just really expensive. And like for my family, they were just like, don't be ridiculous. Cause I, of course I started with them and they were like, mm. we've already paid for these like show knives that you're trotting around. <laughs> like we're not buying anymore. <laughs> they still have them though. And the scissors. So yeah, my mom still has the scissors. <laughs> <laughs> we we should have like gotten this years. episode <laughs> sponsored by Cutco. I should have thought. Of that. <laughs> oh, oh darn. Maybe it's not too late. <laughs> yeah. It's not like it's airing right now. Like, let's, 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 uh, call them up and get them to sponsor this. <laughs> yeah. So if you hear a Cutco ad edited into this, uh, conversation, you'll know, you'll know that happened. But so, uh, how about, but how about the, the rat element? Is, was that, uh, autobiographical in any way? Do you have any, uh, 
Because you live in New York City, right? So I do, and I I remember hearing um, Elizabeth Acevedo, um, she's a Dominican poet and novelist, um, talking about. She started out as a poet, and she talked about writing, um, being being in an MFA program, reading all these poems about like birds, like starlings, and you know, like trees, and trying to take her sort of do her own take on the New York pastoral and writing this poem <laughs> about a rat. <laughs> and everyone was like, this is so gross. Like, why didn't you bring this in here? And I remember just thinking it is gross, but it's New York, right? Like it's real. And I just have, I've had it in my, like in my brain that I want to write like the New York fauna into my stories, like more as, as a, more of a deliberate, intentional choice. So I was like, I want to write a story that features the rat. And I just had, that was an idea I was carrying around for like years. And then, you know, it was like shaken out of me. Mm-hmm. That's interesting you say that because there's another story in this book that uh, is sort of an ode to cockroaches. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, sort of the vermin, <laughs> we got the, the vermin theme going mm-hmm. on there. And it's um, so. It's so lovely. Celeste <laughs> Baker's Glass Model Dancer as a shout out in case anyone is interested. <laughs> like in case, in case we have some really hardcore uh, cockroach fans in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I hate them is what's notable. I hate rats and I hate cockroaches. And I also don't like dragons. So <laughs> I just want to say that, this, that these stories made me love things that I ordinarily would not even <laughs> want to read about. Uh, did you have a bad experience with uh, dragons as a child? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> traumatic dragon memory. <laughs> did you, you did you ever live in a dragon infested apartment? This is the worst. Oh, if only. Uh, were you? No, a, were... I just, I just, I think I never like. I just, you know, like some sci-fi readers as kids are like dragon people in the same way that like little girls are like horse people. You know, mm-hmm. um, I just wasn't one of those people, but. <laughs> Kate Elliott changed my mind. So, <laughs> I was just picturing Veronica as a door-to-door sword salesman and uh, <laughs> finding the apartment infested with dragons. I would be good so. at selling swords. I would <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we talk about the since you mentioned it the the Kate Elliott story, and I, I, I do want to come back to um, to Johanka's other story, but let's talk since we're on the subject of dragons. Let's talk about that because it's a really interesting premise because Kate Elliott, she was basically, she was invited to write a story for a dragon anthology. And she thought, well, in these dragon stories, the um, people are always sacrificing these like young virgins to the dragons. And she thought, well, like actually society tends to like really value women who are young and, and beautiful and fertile and everything. And then as women age, they tend to lose status and lose value. And so maybe the ones who would get fed to the dragons would actually be the older women, which I thought was a really interesting sort of twist on that, on that whole idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the other ones that made me cry uh, <laughs> in case anyone's keeping track, which you shouldn't. Um, but it was just so, I don't know. It has such a sad um, sort of resigned feeling to it when you read it. Um, and then it, I won't give away anything else about it, but um, I don't know. It just becomes very much about like a community and women. And um, I don't know, it's just very meaningful. And so, you know, I guess that's my way into dragons is finding, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> finding some kind of like a, um, 
I don't know, emotional angle on it. And it just made me think about how, I don't know, how we don't recognize the value of some of our most valuable people. Um, and it really brought that home in a very personal feeling way. So that's a great story. Yeah, I mean, there there was a moment in the story where the, the protagonist makes a big choice. And that definitely, like, was a really emotional, emotional moment for me, uh, reading mm. the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to stand out uh, writing dragon stories just because there's been so many, um, you know, published in the field over, you know, over, you know, it, it, once once you start reading in it, even even if you're not like doing an exhaustive uh, study of the field, like uh, somebody like me does, uh, you know, just as a casual reader, like you're, I mean, you're going to encounter so many different dragon stories. So um, it's, I always really love it when I find one that just really makes it feel like, oh, this is a dragon story unlike any other dragon story I've ever read. Yeah. So out of all the thousands of stories you've read, John, you you I can't think of ever of ever having seen a story with that premise before. And I guess you you, you can't either off the top of your head. Yeah, no, I mean I I mean nothing I can think of, yeah. Uh it's possible I'm not thinking of something. It's possible even with all my exhaustive reading I haven't read <laughs> one that did do it, but yeah. Yeah. Um all right, cool. So let's come back to Yohanka. So your other story that's in this book is called Our Language. So you want to tell us about how kind of what was the um you know, the, the genesis of that story? Um, yeah, I think I was, um, I was, I don't think I had the language for this yet, but I was trying to figure out, um, this is something that Kelly Link talks a little bit about, this idea of having like a running list of your narrative obsessions, things that you see in your, in, when you hear the premise for a story, right? Like the opposite of how Veronica feels about dragons. <laughs> the, the like, I have to read that. That sounds amazing. Um, and I remember, you know, feeling this way about monsters, but like, um, like humanoid, like where not, not even werewolves as much, but like vampires and, and I don't know. I, I wanted to have like a, like a more comprehensive list of monsters. And I remember thinking about the fact that, you know, my family is from the Dominican Republic in Cuba, and I just didn't know of any, like, Latin American or Caribbean monsters. And so I, I just set off on this, like, research project to find them, um, because, of course, the folklore is just as um, vivid and exciting in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean as it is anywhere else, right? So there, there had to be some that I knew. And I started going through and, and looking for some. And the Siguapa, which is this diminutive um, woman, um, it, I think there's some research that, that says that it could be a man as well. There's some stories that, that have it be male as well. But I was interested with the more specifically in the idea of it being a woman um, who who's very small and charming, um, on a sort of, like in a feral way, um, and whose legs grow, sorry, and whose legs grow backwards. And I found that to be, uh, a really exciting monster to think about, you know, cause like, what would her powers be? What does it all mean? And in researching this, I found, um, that it's really rooted in indigenous and, um, enslaved folks stories because what her real superpower was was being able to escape right it's mm. like powers of escape and i thought it was i thought it dovetailed really beautifully with some 
conversations around gender and this idea of um, just gender repression, you know, and it just it was something that I was sort of carrying around and thinking about and then trying to write a character who was a Siguapa as opposed to writing about the Siguapa. Does that make sense? Instead of writing about people trying to defeat one or hunt one down, I wanted to write about someone who was one. And that led me down this path of sort of, you know, imagining a girl in one of the Dominican Republic's most brutal periods, which was the dictatorship of Trujillo, um, which is a, a really, uh, just people were getting massacred. Um, it was a really dark time in the Dominican Republic's history. And I started with that because I think I wanted, um, as an, as an American writer, I, I wanted to really do justice to the research and really force myself to, to go there. Uh, and so it took a long time. I read a lot, you know, I researched a lot, read a lot of books to come up with like, you know, like a 15 page story. Um, and it, I workshopped it a few times and it didn't quite, didn't quite work because the ending wasn't the ending that it has now. Um, and I just kept sort of approaching it and then walking away from it, you know, until one day it sort of coalesced. And I think writers, hopefully I know that feeling of when something <laughs> just kind of clicks into place. And even if it's not perfect in the execution, you feel like something is right. You know, something has landed where it belongs. And that was three years after I started hmm. it. Yeah. Some things just need a lot of cooking time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be like deeper or more profound than the things that don't need a lot of cooking time. It's just like, depends, <laughs> depends on the story. In this case, it seemed to work out for you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it took a while, for sure. I think I had to grow into the writer Mm -hmm. who could write that, the story, the way that it looks now. I mean, this idea that, so what happens in the story is that there's this young woman and she sort of is a Siguapa, but it's sort of something that happens as you hit adolescence. And so... um, is is that something? Was that uh, is that a folklore thing, or is that sort of a twist that you put put on it for this story? That is a twist that I put on it because I think there's because there's not that much written about it. There's a little bit of I felt like there was a little bit of liberty there, and I I wanted the story to reach into modernity as much as possible. Like I didn't want it to feel like oh, this is, this is an old-timey thing that doesn't exist anymore. So I wanted to create some sort of logic for how there could be more of them and they could continue to exist, have it it's be like to, a dormant gene. It's hard to imagine the story without that because um, I, it just adds such a like wistfulness and longing to her perspective because she's lived this life and then she turns into this thing. Um, so she has to lose all of it. There's so much to lose. So I think it was a... Smart choice. Otherwise, it's like a longing for a thing she hasn't experienced. So, I don't know. It just loses something. Thank you. I agree. I, I think it was, again, not because I like my wisdom, but because <laughs> of just trial and error. <laughs> just like trying, you know, throwing things at the wall. Eventually, that felt right. Could you say, uh, Johanka, I mean, both the, the two stories in this book were published in one story in a public space originally, which are sort of not like specifically fantasy and science fiction uh, markets. Could you talk about sort of, um, you know, 
like, like selling sort of fantastical things to those sorts of markets and kind of like how do you pick whether to send a particular story to a, a fantasy and science fiction magazine or a like a more literary mainstream kind of magazine? That is a great question. And I wish I could come in here and say that there's like hmm. logic or science to anything I do. <laughs> um, but one story just happens to be, um, just one of my favorite, um, magazines because of the format, you know, so you get like a little zine and it's just one story every month. Um, and I find that really calming, hmm. uh, <laughs> which is not, it's nothing to do with, I think it, it accepts fantastical stories and, you know, but it, it is, I guess, considered a more literary space. Um, and it was the only place I, it was just the first place I sent it to. And I just got, you know, they accepted it. But I, I didn't, I, I can't say that there was a strategy to it. And then with the public <laughs> space, there was just like a call for publication, um, for, um, submissions that it said something like, if you have stories that are about ancestral memory mm. and, mm. um, and I, I just was like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess this is it. You know, I submitted it and I, I'm such a slow, like agonized submitter in general that I, I don't think much about doing it, but I, I like my, my, um, what is it called? Duotrope, my submittable, they're all just like blank. <laughs> It's just so scary to me to take your work and send it out. So mm -hmm. I don't do it that often. <laughs> I've been lucky. <laughs> Actually, speaking of markets, John, I did want to ask you. So mm -hmm. in the uh, in in your intro, you say that usually every year when you write these intros, you have to list all the magazines oh. that died over mm -hmm. the over the course of the year, and that yeah. you didn't have to do this do that this year, and that actually some magazines returned from the dead. Mm -hmm. So, like, wh why do you think it is that just? chance or is there any particular reason why nothing no no markets died this past year you know i don't know it was really surprising to me just because publishing did get so uh sort of turned topsy-turvy with the pandemic and everything and like everybody was scrambling and didn't know how to deal with it uh because it completely upended um you know business as usual um which you know relies very heavily on uh authors doing promotional events and and doing bookstore signings and all those kinds of things um but uh, in terms of like the magazines, I, I mean, I kind of feel like maybe it had something to do with like, well, people were a lot of people were not having to go to a day job um, or they were working from home. And so they had they just had more time to uh, maybe devote to their magazines, uh, whereas like, you know, because like, I, I mean, most most people who are publishing a science fiction fantasy magazine are not doing it as a job. It's like it's a side thing that they're doing. Um, and so they have some other real job regular job that uh that you know pays the bills um and so maybe maybe just that because you know they were saving an hour commute to and from work every day they had more time to work on their things or um i don't know it's a it's all guesswork on my part but um i mean i i honestly would have expected there to be a lot more um closing up and and uh ceasing publication just because you know um a lot of people lost their jobs once the pandemic hit and uh there was just a lot of uh sort of belt tightening that was needed uh i mean for almost everyone um so yeah i, I was really surprised to see that it, uh every everyone was so resilient and i mean 
maybe it was partly because it's like everyone was thinking, well, people need this right now. And like, so it was like more important to stick around rather than close up because it's like, we need, we need this to look forward to when we're dealing with all this, you know, scary bleakness out in the real world, uh, more so than usual with the pandemic where it's like, you know, your life is literally at risk now all the time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's my only theory, really. No, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And certainly doing a podcast, which I do from home, <laughs> is kind of yeah. like, well, I might as well keep doing this. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is not the time to branch out to something else. Um, and also, I mean, I feel like a, like a fiction magazine is something that like everyone can do it from home. And it doesn't require any huge outlay of, you know, capital or anything. Like like one of the magazines that did close down this year I saw was Cinefix. You know, which which covers special effects in Hollywood movies, and it's like obviously, like you can't go two years without mm. big special effects laden movies and keep a magazine <laughs> like that going, right? You know? So it just depends. Like like fiction magazines are fortunately sort of more, you know, don't don't depend on yeah something like that to keep going. Um. All right. Cool. So let's uh, let's talk about some of these other stories in the book. Um. So one I, I really wanted to talk about is called The Beast Adjoins by Ted Kosmatka. Um so let's see. So so John, you wanna say uh do you remember uh why you why you selected this to be one of the eighty stories? Yeah, no, I mean that that story was one of those like, oh, you know, obviously it's going right on my list, you know. Um uh and I, I reread it today and it was like, Oh man, it's such a great story. Uh I, I was thinking how it's like, you know, so it appeared in Asimov's and it's like, is this not like the quintessential Asimov story? It just feels like it's got Asimov's written all over it. Like if, if, if I hadn't known that it was published there, I'd been like, Oh yeah, this was an Asimov. Right? <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, which is not to say that like, I would, I, I mean, obviously I would have published it too if, if Ted had said it to me, but, um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's so, it's so great. It like, it, it pushes all the sense of wonder buttons. It's got all this cool character stuff in there. And uh, it's just like, it feels like enormous. Like there's like so much going on in the story. Um, yeah. I, I just love it. Yeah, let me just describe the, the yeah. premise. So, and I'm not a scientist, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll do my best here. But, but basically the, the premise of the story is that, so there's like a, um, there's what's happening in the present, which is where there is a mother and her son, and they're among possibly the last survivors of humanity, and they're in deep space being hunted by AIs run amok. And then there's sort of the backstory of how this AI uprising happened. And basically, uh, and, and the, the story is, uh, built around something called the von Neumann Wigner interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is that <laughs> human consciousness is necessary to, uh, collapse the wave function in quantum mechanics. So, like, at very small scales, particles don't, they sort of flicker in and out of existence and are in multiple places at once. And, uh, and there's something called collapsing the wave function, which is where they become fixed in reality. And so the, the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation is that human consciousness or some sort of consciousness plays a role in making that happen. And I think that that's a, at this point, I think that's a very minority view in physics, but it's, uh, it makes a great story. <laughs> um, and so in this story, they, um, it, it turns out that once you get an AI to a certain level of sophistication, it stops being able to act unless it's being observed by people. And um, because it's quantum processes are, you know, cease functioning if people aren't observing it and it can't collapse the wave function by itself. 
because uh, it doesn't have a sort of human type consciousness. And so the AIs come to resent this and they start, it's like, it's really, really creepy, but they, they, <laughs> they start like kidnapping people and imprisoning them so that they'll always be observing them. And so they can keep moving around and capture more people and stuff. I, I just love the story. Um, so uh, Veronica, do you want to talk about kind of what was your experience like uh, reading the story? Yeah, so I, um, I'm also not a scientist. So <laughs> a lot of the story was me being like, okay, pause quantum mechanics. Um, but I think I reached the part <laughs> where, uh, the, like the machines were using people like attached to the front of themselves in order to keep time moving. And I was like, this is revolting. Um, and I love it because like it, it's, it has haunted me ever since I read it. I can't stop thinking about it in the way that you know when you watch a horror movie um, and you maybe aren't that scared in the moment, but you can't stop thinking about it and you're like, oh gosh, <laughs> this is really mm -hmm. sticking with me. That's how this story was. And then it also, like in addition to having that part of it, then the forward thrust of the narrative is this woman and her son. And there's just, I mean, it's really heartbreaking. Um, she's just trying to do whatever is possible to preserve his life, even though he is like imminently in danger. I mean, both of them are in danger, but he's especially in danger. So um, that kind of like very f human desperation juxtaposed against this like <laughs> kind of horrifying <laughs> AI future, which like John said, is just so huge. Like the world of the story is so huge. And then the story itself is so, is so small. Um, but there's, uh, can I just read a line from it? The <laughs> one yeah, that yeah. really, it really stuck with me. Okay. Um, it says, once your kind imagined you might make cyborgs of yourselves, taking machine into your bodies to make you whole, the AI bent close, but it was always going to be the other way around. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, Veronica, I just have to say, I have the exact line written out. Because huh. I awesome. was going to, I was going to also be like, can I read them online? <laughs> With nice. the ellipses too. Line. Nice. <laughs> if you're listening. Yeah, I, I just have to say, uh, I kind of wanted to interrupt the podcast right now to call Ted Kuzmatka and be like, Ted, I got the next blurb for your collection whenever it comes out. Uh, Veronica Roth says, it's revolting, and I love it. <laughs> I only mean it as a compliment. <laughs> no, I know. It's just awesome. I love it. I, I actually love that as a blurb. That, that's interesting what you say, that the world building is so uh, developed for this short story. Like, it makes me wonder, like, if he is if you ever thought about expanding it uh, into something longer. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels to me like one of those examples where there is all this tremendous amount of world building in it, but um, I feel like it works better in this compressed space. And then if you took it and you just expanded it into a whole novel, like that might take away some of the magic of it. Um, but I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I, well, if, if, he, if I he did it, I'd certainly read it. I, I agree. Maybe this story is best kept short, but maybe you could take some, you know, have some other stories because I, I just feel like this is such an interesting premise of these AIs that can only function when humans are observing them. Yeah, I feel yeah. like there's yeah, probably I, a lot, a lot of other narratives you could spin out of that. I wouldn't say I'm like extremely well read in the like robot slash AI subgenre of science fiction, but this is the first time I've ever seen that um, that concept of the observer and um, all of that in in anything so i i was really struck by it yeah i mean Johanka, what did you have anything else you wanted to say about the story 
I mean, it was such a beautiful, I I think it's, I'm just echoing everybody else, but such a beautifully realized and like chilling premise, right? This reversal of what we imagine um, AI can do for us. I don't, I just, I I too was like haunted by Hmm. it. Um, And I, like, there's that passage where they just are creating human, like, I think Veronica mentioned this, like, taillights, humans in Ugh. jars that are just like an eye and like a, like a blob of flesh. And oh my just, gosh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such, such incredible, like, incredibly horrific, um, writing. I, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, it's just, it's so striking me t- to me too. You know, you think about how, like, the, you know, the word robot, uh, came from Carl Chapek's play, Rossum's Universal Robots, which is about an AI uprising. And then here we are, whatever, like a hundred years later or something, still writing about AI uprising and still mm-hmm. finding completely fresh, terrifying new mm-hmm. spins to put on that same idea. Right. I mean, I think it, you know, I am always looking for that moment when you read a story and you're like, wait, why hasn't this been done before? Like, it seems mm-hmm. obvious. Um, and I think that reversal that Johanka was talking about where it's like, we created, you know, we create AI to serve us, ostensibly, and then they find a way for us to serve them. That's like, this was an atypical way of realizing that with the taillight people. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> Good job, Ted. Yeah. And I I love too that the question that keeps popping up throughout is what does it mean to be alive? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to live? And we see the AIs sort of grappling with this and finding ways to make it, to make a sort of systemic process of taking humans and and making, you know, being alive. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. we have the through story or the forward story of this mother trying to figure out how to keep her son alive, even though he's got this, you know, he's, he's ill. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful way of creating a parallel. Um, it's, it's a lovely story hmm. in on, I think on a like thematic and poetic level too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just the way it deals with this concept of the philosophical zombie that, you know, that you could have mm-hmm. something as smart as a person, but totally without any consciousness. And then, yeah, how would they act and, and what would that, what would that mean really for something to, you know, to have complex motivations? but just be kind of empty, completely empty inside. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I just thought it was a tremendous story. And, and artificial intelligence is, is another one of the themes I kind of identified running through this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a number of stories that deal, a couple I, I wrote down here, Survival Guide, Beyond the Dragon's Gate, Skipping Stones in the Dark, and Brother Rifle. Mm-hmm. Just off the bat, I'll deal with artificial intelligence in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I totally noticed that before you said it just now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, John, is that you, you see the? Did you did you notice any AI themes running this this running through these stories? Uh, I mean, over the course of uh, I, I mean, I'd be curious to see if uh, if maybe Veronica just uh, sort of mostly gravitated toward those, and uh, it, or or if the percentage is similar throughout the whole eighty. Uh, I I doubt that's the case. Um, uh, and it might just be that it was a very good year for AI stories. Um, so uh, co- co- coinciding with uh, maybe Veronica's uh, unknowing uh, preference for such things, uh, or maybe <laughs> maybe maybe newly discovered uh, preference. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't know. I I hadn't really thought about it um, until you guys were just pointing it out. Um, 
So I'd, I'd be curious, actually. I don't know how well you you remember Skipping Stones in the Dark or if you read it recently, but I mean, I, I definitely want to reread it. But kind of my take when I got to the end of it was kind of like, oh, I, I feel like this is like a, um, you know, this is like a story. Maybe if it was like like Hal from 2001, if a story was told from his point of view, you know, mm. making him seem you know, like, like, like it's logical what he's doing, you know, that was kind of, if I went back and reread it, that was kind of what I, what I wanted to look at, uh, if that was sort of, you know, the, the best, uh, interpretation of the events of the story. I, I think that's a smart connection to make because it definitely strikes me that way. Like while I was reading it, I was surprised by how many horrifying things I was like willing to go along with from this, narrator's perspective and i think that's ultimately why i was like we have to include this one um because it forced me into a completely unreal uh or unhuman mindset and made it feel believable and even like you know pretty reasonable <laughs> to me while i was <laughs> reading it as just like ejecting people into space <laughs> like yeah it seems necessary um well yeah it's very skillful yeah, I- I think there's just something about a character who's like a voice, a character voice that seems calm and rational and authoritative. And it can, that can take you a long way before you start being like, wait, is this, is this a good <laughs> idea? You know? Yes. Um, does anyone have anything else they wanted to add about any of those, those AI stories I mentioned beyond the dragon's gate, brother rifle survival guide? Um, yeah, Beyond the Dragon's Gate was another one of those stories that seemed, you know, it seemed obvious, like I should have seen it done before, because it's essentially about, you know, uh, an AI occupi- that occupies a physical body, which is a ship, I think, a spaceship. It's been a, a little bit yeah, since I've read that star one. Starships, yeah. Yeah, starships. And then when you alter the physical body, the AI experiences dysphoria. Um, and that seemed like, of course that might you know that might be the case because like i don't know kind of examining like the interplay between your consciousness and your physical form um i don't know just seems like an obvious thing to examine with ai and then also um the way it relates to uh dysphoria in in trans people i don't know it just seemed like such a clear (laughs) clear parallel to make anyway i thought i thought that one was um was very special in that regard and that was sort of a new AI concept to introduce. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. Yeah, that again, it's kind of like, oh, how come this hasn't been done before? It's like, yeah, it's just so interesting how you can keep coming up with new ideas, even even after. Yeah, so you feel like everything's been fiction. done, but it hasn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Johanker, were there any other stories in the book that you wanted to to touch on? Um. Oh. Um. <laughs> well, I remember. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, well, I was revisiting Let's Play Dead um, mm. this morning because um, I've been I've been sort of rationing the story rationing the stories out for myself because I listen to them while I while I walk and it, I find it to be such a delightful um, way of moving through the stories. I, the, I highly a plug here for the audiobook is what mm. I'm saying. <laughs> um, but Let's Play Dead um, was a really interesting story in terms of like how it was moving across time. You know, like it had that like there was a Tom and Jerry dynamic that got increasingly more and more brutal. Um, <laughs> like at one point, <laughs> the guy does draw a canyon and she falls into it. Oh my gosh, Tom and Jerry—that's such a good way of. <laughs> 
I had never thought about that, but you're totally right. I mean, that in, the the most, yeah, in the most, yeah, in the most gory like, and brutal, horrible way. Yeah. Oh man, mm-hmm. we just got we're just getting blurb after blurb here. Like, you know, we're getting, <laughs> let's get that on the well, cover of her collection. Let's uh, let's just describe the the premise of the story. So it's it's sort of like it describes a relationship between a man and a woman. And it's kind of like dreamlike and surreal and sort of, it's sort of like shifting. And sometimes it seems like it's talking about people living in modern times. And sometimes it seems like it's talking about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. But, but basically the man keeps murdering the woman and then she keeps not being dead. And it's, it's in this very sort of dreamlike kind of, uh, you know, shifting reality sort of way. Um, and, and sort of it's in a kind of like a fairy tale voice throughout. And it's very um, funny so until, of- until it's not. <laughs> which is the best part about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it was kind of reminds me of um like the 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 way it's told is sort of like um Kelly Link's Travels with the Snow Queen or like some of Amy Bender's stories where it's this kind of like fairy tales mixed with modern times mixed with absurdism sort of. Mm. Worth clocking here is the appearance of an intrepid cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're tracking the vermin. <laughs> Vermin watch. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, remind, sorry, sorry, remind, remind me about, what was the cockroach? It's very small, but there's a passage where um, the protagonist finds a cockroach and, like, makes a path for it instead of killing it. And then imagines okay. it having her, imagines it being her and her having thousands and thousands of babies or millions of babies, even. And surviving, mm. like, forever. That's a tr- that's interesting. It didn't occur to me that we might have had a whole vermin theme running through lots of these stories. I'll have to think about Okay, well, clearly I have to put together like an AI vermin anthology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would love a vermin anthology. I would 100% read it. Same. <laughs> All right, well, okay, well, uh, let me get my agent on the horn. Three readers. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I mean, Crawfather is kind of a vermin yeah. story, I guess, right? I was going to bring that up. Um, <laughs> Crawfather was one of the... Okay, so maybe you should... If we're going to talk about it, you should maybe explain the premise first. Yeah, so so, so there's this family, I think in like Minnesota or something, and they, they get together every summer for a family reunion. And um, I think like... I forget the details, but one of their like grandparents was killed by this giant crawdad that lives in this underwater cave on this lake that they go to every year and so it's just a family tradition that every year they go and and do battle with this giant uh, crawdad with like uh, bows and arrows and like spiked baseball bats and stuff like that um and so every year they fight it and and most of the time nobody dies and it and, and they're but they're not able to kill it and this has been going on for i don't know 30 years or something Yes. And it's so, so funny. It, and it asks you to kind of step into this like completely absurd world uh, of this family. And so it's like the wacky family via giant Midwestern crawdad. <laughs> so like, I, I think I explained it to like five people after I read it. And that's how I knew that I had to, had to choose it. It's like, I can't, I mean, I was so delighted by it i couldn't couldn't even process mm. but then it has like a real emotional undercurrent kind of like the the things that tie families together and um i don't know i can't say more without like ruining the story <laughs> but, mm. um anyway 
it it has it's not just funny it has a lot of depth to it um i think but it was just <laughs> sorry i'm laughing just thinking about it oh my God. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to, I, I really liked the ending and I don't want to give away the ending, but it, it, it's a, it has sort it was, yeah, it's one of these things that you sort of like keep chewing on long after the story is over and, and the author's note is kind of interesting. And again, I won't go into details, but, but yeah, like it is, you know, it's, it's not just a story about people fighting a giant crawdad, right? It has like, you know, it, it, it operates on a, on a metaphorical level as well. And a lot of these stories do, like if you read the author's notes at the back of the book, like so many of these stories, you know like are dealing with really serious issues in this sort of metaphorical way um, that, that a lot of, you know, like the best um, fantasy and science fiction does. Um, I guess I, I definitely, the, one of the stories I, I, I wanted to talk about is called the pill. Um, I was just mm. totally blown away by this story. Um, but the, the premise is that they invent this diet pill that causes you to lose tons and tons of weight very, very rapidly but about one in 10 people who take it die and people want to lose weight so much that this doesn't really stop people from taking it. And so it's just sort of this, um, you know, so, so pretty quickly everybody in society becomes skinny and, um, and there's this sort of carnage that happens kind of off, you know, out of people's, you know, that people don't really talk about or, you know, that, that it's sort of, I don't know how to put it, but it, it, there's just like so many lines in the story that are just like such a gut punch. Um, I'll just I'll just read one. So so there's a part where uh, the father is about to undergo. The the, the story focuses on this family. Uh, it's like a father and mother and daughter and son. And um, and the mother says at one point the father's about to undergo that she's he's about to start taking the pill. And the mother says, "I can't wait for you kids to see what your dad really looks like." And the daughter says, I just sat there wondering if I was real. Are fat people fake? Do we not have souls? Does nothing I do count if I do it while I'm fat? And there's just a lot of lines in the story like that that just like, yeah, that just really hit you. Mm. Yeah. The story uh, blew me away. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. I was just going to say, the story blew me away, and I also flagged that line as such an incredible... <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um such an incredible um argument or you know question sorry Veronica I cut you off no uh it's fine I I also remember that line and I was gonna say it was I think this story made me the most uncomfortable in that it really made me contend with myself in uh, a new way I think because I uh had never thought about like the the difficulties that arise when trying to occupy a space that's like built for very thin people. Like, uh, I think there's a moment where she like can't, she can't, you know, she can't sit in like a normal chair because now everybody is thin. So it's even worse than it is now. But like, um, like Meg says in her, uh, note at the back of the book, like this story isn't really that it's not really that science fictional. Like it's really very, very real. Um, and so I don't know it. It's such a powerful story, and that it kind of makes you look at the world around you uh, in a new way. At least if you're if you're me and you haven't um, really thought about this that much before. So it was a really challenging story in a lot of ways, which I um, was really impressed with. Uh, John, what did you think of the the pill? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I thought it was amazing, um, and uh, you know, uh, it, it was one of those. Uh, 
where I was like really glad to see it get like sort of widespread acclaim, um, you know, cause like I had found it, uh, cause I, you know, I had uh, uh, read uh, other Meg Ellison stories before and, and, you know, thought she was great. And then, so when, uh, when this came out, it was in the, this, like, it was published in this like uh, small collection of hers. And I wasn't sure as many people would see it that should see it, but then it got, it got nominated for the Nebula and the Hugo. So, um, so that was very cool to see. Uh, Cause I think, um, you know, when you have stories like this, that like, I, I think, you know, like as Veronica was saying, it's like it, it to a lot of people, it's like this is going to be uh, the first time, you know, you think about these things in this way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, again, like you were saying, Veronica, that, uh, you know, it, it's not really that science fictional. So it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's really great when you have stories like this that are so powerful and so well done. Uh, but then also like, you know, you have this other element to it that it's like, oh, well, no, this is like actually revelatory for a lot of people. And, um, you know, just it, it, I, I love the way, it, you know, sort of these things, stories like this just like really make you think about, you know, maybe think about the world in a new way. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one way in which the story is science fictional in a really good way is that, you know, it, it doesn't just present the idea and then stick with that static situation. It keeps complicating it and mm. keeps introducing these new mm. twists and everything. And so at one point, um, after the pill has become really, um, widespread, uh, there's a line that says, um, they weren't making it illegal to be fat exactly, but it was as close as they could get. It was going to be legal to deny health insurance to anyone with a BMI over 25 if they refused the pill. Intentional obesity would also be grounds for loss of child custody and would be acceptable reason for dismissal from a job. And, you know, one of the things that is often said about science fiction, I forget actually exactly who said it, but, you know, that like a science fiction writer, your job is not to predict the automobile, right? Like anyone could predict the automobile. Your job is to predict the interstate highway system and the suburbs and, and stuff like that, you know, to, to look at sort of the, the second order effects of these technological changes. And so I thought that this story functioned really well in that way as a science fiction story where it's not just like, how does this, um, uh, this new technology affects the protagonist. I mean, it certainly goes into that, but also how does it affect the wider society and, and everything like that, which I thought was really good. Mm. It also just reflects such a, like a deep awareness of like what people, what people are like. Like I, sometimes, you know, you read a story with like kind of a wild premise and you think that the people in the story are not behaving the way that people behave. Um, and that's always really frustrating for me. And um and something that will really put me off a story. But in this one, I never have for a moment doubted that with a one in 10 chance of death and not to mention like even the people who survive the pill go through like extreme, like physical agony to get this result. Whatever. I never had trouble believing that this would become like a widespread thing because of, the, because of how fat phobic we are and how uncomfortable we make life um, for bigger people. Yeah. Like I, I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, obviously, and and I think um, I think she knows that when she's writing it, so she doesn't she doesn't really have to justify it. It's like this is you know, you know it, I know it, like this is how people would be. So um, I thought that was just really smart. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the, uh, it also it was really good science fiction in the sense that yeah, like how the pill works is that it breaks down your you know it rapidly breaks down your fat cells. And then they have to mm. go somewhere, right? And so they pass very agonizingly through your bowels. And so it is like, it's not just like magic. It, it's like thinking about some of those, you know, uh, 
logistics of, of that kind of thing. And then also, yeah, in terms of the the psychology of people, I also just I want to read, read just one more uh, section from the story. Um, this is uh, when people, you know, these these one in ten people are dying and, and having funerals and stuff. And it says, um, but everyone was so proud of them that they had died trying to better themselves, that all the obituaries and eulogies had a weird, wistful tone to them, as if it was the next best thing to being thin. At least they didn't have to live that fat life anymore. So yeah, just there's so many lines yeah. like that. They're just yeah. yeah. Um. All right. Cool. Any uh, Yohanka? Any uh, any other thoughts about the pill? Uh, I love this story, and I think um, that this. I mean, I think you guys touched on it a little bit too. But this this idea of blurring the lens, turning the dial just a little bit on something that already exists, because there are all these like weight loss methods that are extremely risky and dangerous and people do them anyway. Um, and I think um, this idea of like, I, I remember when one of the, I, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but there's a moment where one of the characters undergoes this, you know, takes the pill and um, it just, the line is it gave her someone else's life entirely, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like you're living this completely different life if you are in a fat body um, and I think like the way that the story um, escalates and like, as you were saying, complicates that is, is really fascinating how like the world gets smaller. Like there was a point where um, she's like, the stairs were getting complicated. Like the stairs were too small. So it's like the buildings, everything was changing at a structural level. Um, and I think that was just such a beautiful, like carrying through of the, of the, the technology and the this shift in in how people were behaving. Um, mm. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. it. Blew me away. Yeah. Well, well, you mentioned the the this is the, there. There's real uh, procedures, some of which carry really uh, high risks. I mean, um, Meg Ellison actually says in the author's note that the story was inspired by it was like her friend's mom or something died after from complications of a you know some mm. surgical wow. weight loss kind of procedure. So, yeah. So, you know, it's a kind of another way in which, you know, she says this is not really fiction, this, this story. Um, all right. So other, so, uh, Veronica, any other stories from the book you wanted to, uh, oh my touch God. On? Well, I love them all. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very, yeah, I, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I guess I, I do want to point out the cleaners by Ken Liu. Um, because I, that one really affected me too. It's the premise of it is that, um, it's like in a kind of alternate universe, modern feeling, um, where we leave impressions on objects, like of memories. Um, and there's, you like know, physical deposits. of memories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, then obviously like the, the new business that would arise in that alternate universe is that someone's got to clean those deposits off of objects in case people don't want to like, you know, because then the resale shops become very complicated, <laughs> for example. Um, anyway, I just, uh, I thought that one was, was really, I mean, obviously, I, I think they're all excellent. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I wouldn't have selected them out of 80. Um, but well, I could, I could just say about the, the Kendallu story, his, his author's note was interesting, too, because he was invited to write a story for a, um, like a retelling of fairy tales kind of anthology. And so he's like, well, I didn't want to do just a normal retelling of fairy tales so i wanted so i decided to do, to do kind of like a retelling of the princess and the pea and if you if you mm -hmm. read the story this is pretty far removed <laughs> from the princess and the pea um but it's the same idea of like di people having different levels of sensitivity to some thing 
And, you know, so the, the, so the story revolves around these three characters who are, you know, one who like just can't, uh, experience the, the memories from these deposits at all. One of whom has sort of a normal level of sensitivity to them. And then one who's hypersensitive and has to wear gloves and avoid like touching anything because she's so overwhelmed by these memories. And so I, I just thought that was an interesting sort of uh, insight into where a story like this can come from. Cause, cause it is so obviously so different from, uh, from the princess and the pea. It was sort of connected in my mind to the rat, actually, because it's like, um, not that the the rat in the story, the rat is necessarily like a memory or something, but the rat is sort of like grief embodied physically, and the cleaners is like uh, memories embodied physically. So this idea of like having to encounter these things that are so difficult for us and finding them to be unavoidable and like, because they've taken a shape in front of us um, was an interesting connection. I, I don't know. It clearly spoke to me since I picked them both. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It was pretty brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, see John, are there any other like topics you want to bring up or stories you wanted to highlight? Uh, I mean, uh, I, I was just thinking that I should mention uh, that, uh, you know, when you were asking about the magazines that had ceased publication or and some had come back from the dead. Uh, so one of them that came back from the dead is Fantasy Magazine, uh, which uh, I publish. Um, you know, I'm not the editor. The editor is uh, or it's edited by the team of Arlie Sorg, who works at Locus and has been on staff at Lightspeed for a long time. Um, and Christy Yant, who uh, is my wife but also uh, was our pod turn back in the day and uh, is an award-winning editor in her own right. Uh, but um, she uh, uh, so so she and Arlie are doing that and uh, I just figured you know, people people who listen to this show tend to like my stuff sometimes and so it's like, well, <laughs> you should uh, make sure that they're aware that that exists. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was super cool because like, and actually this story was like, I, I think it was in their first issue or it was certainly, I mean, they only had, they had two issues last year so uh, it was in one of those first two issues. <laughs> uh, You're talking about but, and this is how to, how to stay yeah. alive, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that was very cool to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's great that you, that you guys were able to bring back fantasy magazine. Cause yeah, I, I remember kind of, you know, how much you were sort of struggling to keep everything mm-hmm. going back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah just that sort of, you were able to do that. Right. Yeah. So just real quick, it's, it's, a, it's a little weird because, uh, so, uh, when, uh, I took over as publisher of Lightspeed, I also took over as publisher of fantasy. And then at that time I ended up merging fantasy into Lightspeed. So Lightspeed became, went from a science fiction magazine to a science fiction and fantasy magazine. Uh, and then fantasy was sort of like discontinued at that time. Um, and then we brought it back a couple of times when we did our special, uh, special issues for the destroy project. Um, but then otherwise it hadn't been its own thing. Uh, and so now it's like, it's kind of like this weird space because we kept Lightspeed the same. So Lightspeed still is science fiction and fantasy. So it's like, it's still basically <laughs> including the old fantasy. It's, you know, and so it's like, it's like this new fantasy is kind of a clone of the original fantasy, uh, which seems like it's more of a science fictional thing, but uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a ghost. I don't know. Well, people like fantasy, so you yeah. never have too much fantasy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, any other any other uh, topics anyone wants to bring up uh, before we start wrapping this up? 
I mean, I just want to also talk about just briefly Two Truths and a Lie by Sarah Pinsker, which made me realize that maybe I should read more horror because it was so very unsettling. Um, and you really can't like explain anything about it because it sort of spoils it, but it was very unsettling and, uh, and really creepy and great. So open, open your mind to horror, everyone. (laughs) The overlap is, you know, bigger than you think. Actually, between science fiction, especially, I think, and fantasy. Well, it was it was funny too because in her author's note, she says that she doesn't usually write horror, and uh, and and this is it's a really creepy story. Yeah, and she said that even uh, Ellen Datlow was creeped out by it. <laughs> so she said that was that was quite an accomplishment to <laughs> to creep right. out Ellen Datlow when you're not a, <laughs> typically a, a horror writer. <laughs> <laughs> creeped out. <laughs> um. I guess, like, John, you mentioned in, in your intro, you say that Veronica, you say, I learned that she was a huge fan of Frank Herbert's Dune and the works of Madeline Wengel and Philip K. Dick. So I was just curious, Veronica, do you have a Dune fever hmm. right now? Uh, Yeah, I do. I, saw it in the theater. <laughs> I watched it again two days later. I immediately started writing just, you know, when you see something that really... Uh, hits you in a in a good spot you end up wanting to make things again um sometimes at least that's what happened to me with that movie and then uh, i've been listening to the like soundscapes that's supposed to go with like the you know movie companion art or whatever like i'm completely gone um (laughs) i was so happy that they greenlit the second one (laughs) so yep dude fever i've got it (laughs) i thought you were about to say that you uh you watched the you watched it uh you know you know, uh, twice, and then you went home and started writing dot, 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 doing fanfic. No. Because uh, <laughs> there was like, no. there's a bit of a pause, right, when you started saying that. I was like, I was waiting for doing fanfic to come in there, but okay. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I'm glad that that's writing, writing original stuff. Yes, yeah. Still, still haven't dipped a toe into fanfic, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's great Dune fanfic out there right. now, especially with, uh, with Chalamet and Zendaya and the weed rolls. I'm sure it's caught some people's imaginations so so what you were saying that they have this is like different from the than the soundscapes in the movie or yeah so there's like there's like the score you know that you hear in the movie and then there's there's like an art book that goes along with the movie's release and i think it's still hans zimmer i think but uh made like a a little mellower kind of like album you can find (laughs) at least i found it on spotify um Anyway, and yeah, so because it's a little mellower, you can kind of like write to it without feeling like really stressed, which is how I would feel if I were listening to the uh, to the score. Anyway, yeah, so look it up. It's very, it's good. Yeah, because we talked about it last. The, we talked about the movie last week, but I thought the sound, the sound design was just so stunning in that movie. So yeah, can see. it was it was good. The bagpipes when the bagpipes came in. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, <laughs> God, yep. I also I also just did want to mention because you know I, we have obviously have a lot of John fans who listen hmm. to this podcast, and so I just wanted to mention that you got your. You want to tell your story about how you got your dog? Like, oh do you have yeah, any advice for people who, who huh. lose their dogs and how they can get them back. Well, uh, sure. Uh, yeah. So I mean, um, uh, I recently had my dog run off on me. Uh, he got spooked no. when I was out in a walk with him, and uh, and I basically I did everything wrong. You know, if you read the internet advice, which was like, you know, chasing him and, uh, you know, calling his name and all those things, those are not likely to work when a dog runs off when they're scared and spooked. Uh, but anyway, so I, 
you know, he, he got away and he was uh, missing for like 12 days. And uh, so, yeah, it was terrible. Um, And so what we did was we uh, looked up all of the different, um, you know, like Facebook groups that are devoted to uh, finding lost pets and, you know, just posted on all of those, you know, that were local to where I live. Um, And then we went on next door and did the same thing there and was just trying to engage the community as much as possible. Um, and then of course we, uh, you know, we put up, we, uh, put up some flyers around town, like, you know, tried to find like different intersections and things where people would likely to slow down to be able to see it. And, um, and ultimately that's, that's one of those things, uh, is what, uh, helped us find them because, um, you know, we had, uh, we had sort of, uh, we had, we had gotten a lot of sightings and we had gone and looked in the, in the, in the area where the sightings had happened and, and we just never saw him, um, and then the day before we found him, you know, we were following up on a sighting and Christy actually saw him. Um, oh, and wow. we weren't, we weren't together at the time. Like I was looking in a different area. And so she actually saw him and she tried to follow the advice, um, which was, you know, don't call him. Uh, don't like approach him or anything, sit on the ground and don't look at him and like, pretend like you're eating treats or something, you know? <laughs> Cause it's like, and, and, oh and I swear, I swear this is, this is what they say to do. Uh, and maybe that does work with some dogs and maybe that would work for a dog that doesn't know you. But in this case, uh, when we were sort of, uh, examining the situation after the fact that uh, Christy was like, I, I think like he saw, he thought it was me, but then when I wasn't excited to see him, he turned away and was like, oh, that can't be mama. She'd, she'd be excited to see me. Um, so obviously, yeah, that was, that was pretty upsetting, uh, you know, to, to have that thought, you know, um, and also that we didn't get him. We saw him and we didn't get him. Uh, but then fortunately the next day, um, I woke up to uh, a text and somebody had just seen him. And so I went down there and I was driving around and I didn't see him. Um, and so I was like, ah, damn it again. We just, just barely missed him. But then somebody called me and the guy had just literally seen him and I was already in the area. So it's like, I didn't have to have any travel time or like, you know, I had to get dressed time and all that kind of stuff. I was already there. So I, I went over there. And, um, so at, after the experience of the day before we were like, okay, just forget it. When we, if we see him again, we're going to call him. <laughs> we're going to treat him like our dog and, yeah. and, 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 uh, you know, like understanding, uh, how, understanding him as we do and we're just going to go with it um and so uh so i went to where the guy had pointed and he said he was just like in these trees over here and so um i was uh i had like a bunch of i had some of his toys so i was like bouncing one of his tennis balls on the ground you know so he could hear that and maybe smell it and uh, i took one of his bones and was picking it up and throwing it on the street you know to to have that sound that it makes and i had some treats and stuff um and then so eventually uh i was like i was just like uh, playing with the treats and dropping them. And I'm like, Oh, I, I sure wish that there was a, a dog over here. I could give some treats to. Um, and, uh, and then he just, he bursts out of the woods and he like, he, he like looks at me and he's like, he's just kind of standing there like frozen. And I saw him and I just like, I did the whole like, uh, super excited thing. He's like, Krim, come here, buddy. And, you know, uh, and, and, you know, like got down, like I was going to play, you know, doing the, the let's play sort of sign that dogs do. Um, and yeah, he just ran right up to me and he was like, like just so excited. He was like vibrating. <laughs> um, and, and this is like a, like 70 pound German shepherd. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's just, it's a lot when, when he gets yeah. like that, but, uh, it was super exciting. And so, it's like yeah i was so relieved because he just he just ran right to me and then you know i got him in the car as quickly as possible uh and so yeah that uh, i mean I'm that's, so glad that's you got him back. yeah i know me relieved. too thank you yeah 
So what what should I do, John, if I lose my pet rat or cockroach? <laughs> well, um, uh, talk to your local knife salesman, uh, salesman <laughs> and, and and see if they've had any sightings, because I I understand that they encounter those a lot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you know what you do is you get yourself a dragon, and they're specially trained to find these things. The, you know, the hardest to find would be the ciguapa. Yeah, same. well, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you run very fast? So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in both directions. You know, yeah. she could have helped me find uh, catch this German Shepherd who also runs very, very fast. Yeah, and there you go. That was the problem initially. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. 12 days? Yeah. Is that how long? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we found him four miles away. Wow. Oh, I will say there is one other thing that we did. Um, so we have a neighbor who has this really loud dog, and I had had I had seen some advice that said like you could try getting a dog that your dog knows to go into the area where you think he might be, um, so that you know they can smell him and and you know maybe they'll come to that familiar smell or if they bark or whatever. And so this dog is super loud, like barks like like is the biggest woofer, um, and just like real resonant. Um, and so uh, my neighbor actually suggested we. We, we take her and, and go over. It's like, oh, great. Well, because I had that thought, but I didn't want to impose on them, you know? Um, and so this dog, who is so loud all the time, she didn't make a single peep the whole time when we went out <laughs> with her. Uh, she did mark everything in sight. So, uh, uh, though, so... Um, I, I did. I do suspect like, she may have cracked the case. I mean, because uh, uh, we found him exactly... Like, we definitely had gone right where I found him. We, you know, we had definitely gone... The day before, we definitely went right where... I ended up finding Grim. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, so you, think you, you think he smelled this other dog? Maybe, yeah. Maybe, there. yeah. I mean, yeah. he might have thought, like, hey, that, that smells like home, you know? Um, yeah. But. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. All right. But we need to start wrapping this up. So um, let's get into some final thoughts. So, Johanka, any final thoughts on this whole experience of being in and reading Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy? Oh, it's, I mean, it's a dream come true <laughs> for all of us science fiction and fantasy writers um, and being chosen by both John and Veronica. Like it's just, mm-hmm. I mean, dream come true. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And the collection is so beautiful um, because I, I honestly like the genre divisions sometimes don't make much sense to me. Cause I feel like a good story is a good story, you know? And like all these, all the stories I haven't read, all of them yet because I've been, like I said, listening to the audiobook. But the ones I've read so far are so gorgeous and so like richly imagined. And I feel so lucky to have um some work in in the book this year. Yeah. And how about Veronica? Final thoughts. Um well I man, I'm just like rediscovering how much I loved all of these. Um I I think there's kind of something for everyone. If you're more of like a sort of hard, hard sci-fi reader, you'll be introduced to some new people. And um, and if you're on the other end of things, like not such a short fiction reader at all, um, this is like a really good place to start uh, if you love genre fiction or even if you only kind of like genre fiction. <laughs> so that's my sales pitch for the end. <laughs> but I, honestly, I think it's such a good selection of um, the kind of work that people are doing more everywhere from you know more grounded to like completely um different worlds i don't know it's just like a really good range of stories and um yeah some really beautiful really beautiful stories in there i really feel like i learned a lot as a writer so um 
don't know, very special experience. Thanks for asking me to do it, John. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I was thrilled to have you. So uh, I'm always glad when when uh, the guest editor enjoys the experience. I mean, I think everyone has said that they did, and I I, I hope that was actually true. What uh, everyone <laughs> who said that, but uh, yeah, no, I mean it's uh, it's a really cool experience to doing it every year with a different person like this. So. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad it's it's worked out every time so far, uh, the way it has. Um, yeah, and and so like in some cases, like with you, Veronica, you know, I'd gotten to know you fairly well, uh, having edited your novel and everything. We had all these different marketing calls and everything, and all this mm-hmm. all this different discussion and emails and everything. So it's like I felt like we got to know each other pretty well. Some some of the other guest editors I didn't know nearly as well. So I mean, it's uh, so it's it's just interesting to me how it's like, oh, it's always gone great, even though like you know it doesn't matter if I knew the person well or didn't know them at all, you know. Uh, so um, I'm glad that it's continued in that vein. <laughs> Yeah, and just uh, again, John. Like I, I've said this before, but I mean, it, I think it's just so great that you're able to do this. You know, like the best American series is such a uh, sort of you know cultural touchstone mm-hmm. or something. And you know, and it was, you know, it was a shame that they didn't have a science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. one for so many years. And and it's great that now that they do, then that you're doing it. And you know, it's just, it just makes me happy to every time I see best American science fiction and fantasy uh, at the bookstore. So, oh, uh, yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it was a huge honor to me to, um, to, you know, get this off the ground, uh, like we did. And, and I've been really thrilled that we've been able to keep it going all this time. Um, and, you know, there, there will be at least one more volume. Um, and then, you know, uh, we have to wait for the publisher to renew it after that. But, uh, that's sort of been par for the course, uh, over the last couple of years where it's like, okay, well, we know we're doing the next one and then we'll see. But I mean, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't keep continuing. Um, the only uh, the only slight uh, hiccup is that you know HMH Mifflin uh, Harcourt, the publisher, uh, got merged into HarperCollins. Uh, le- was it last year or recently? Anyway, maybe it was this year. I mm-hmm. guess it was this year. Um, and so uh, you know, I don't have any reason to think that that would mean that they would uh, nix it. But you know, it's it, it throws a big variable into the mix, and so who knows? Uh, but um, yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll keep going for a long, long time, and uh, we can keep bringing this. Uh, these awesome selections to everybody. Um, and I, I mean, I hope that we, uh, I hope that we're broadening the audience for science fiction and fantasy and, and for short stories, um, you know, because it's like, uh, you know, this is where my heart is. And uh, I, I just want, I want people to know that all this awesome stuff exists. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think that's a good note to end on. So let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Veronica Roth, and Johanka Delgado. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Veronica Roth, and Johanka Delgado for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.
Thank you for listening.